0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci-fi, TV and film, live from the Palace of Glittering
1: Lights. And here, host Andrew Leyland. There are loads of books, websites, and podcasts devoted to Patrick McGowan's seminal 60s cult classic, *The Prisoner* and rightly so. It's a mind-bending TV show, one of the first to go for surrealism and audience interpretation in lieu of spelling it all out for you. It's both infuriating and masterful, often at the same time, and has only become even more relevant as time has passed, with episodes like Free For All being a wonderful satire on the election cycle that hasn't dated at all. Sadly, However, before The Prisoner, McGowan became the highest-paid television actor in the world, thanks to Danger Man. If you've never heard of Danger Man, chances are you are in the United States, where the series was broadcast under the name Secret Agent Man. And given a different theme tune, one more relevant to The Prisoner than Danger Man, but I'll come to that later. The title and theme were pretty much all that was altered, though. The series itself had a slightly different premise, depending upon which season you were watching. Season 1 had 39 episodes and was made and shown in between 1960 and 1962. These were half-hour adventures, all shot in black and white, and aired on the ITV network being ITC Productions. ITC would go on throughout the 60s and 70s to be the master purveyors of all glossy, all-action adventure serials, but at this point we're relatively new to the game. The previous productions, The Invisible Man, The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Adventures of Sir Lancelot and The Buccaneers were all successful. But the quintessential cigar-smoking TV overlord Lou Grade was always looking for the next big thing. And as such, he turned to the writer-producer of these shows, Ralph Smart, to develop a new series for him. A spy adventure series. This showed great foresight on Grade's part. Remember, Bond hadn't happened yet. And he even drew in Bond creator Ian Fleming in the early development of the show. Grade wanted to crack the lucrative American market, something that would prevail throughout his career, and was finding it difficult to make his brand of adventure serials stand out in a US television landscape that was only interested in westerns. The Adventures of Robin Hood had been a success. American audiences were aware of Robin Hood, as was The Invisible Man, and after conversations with Fleming about the availability of the James Bond rights fell through, Grade asked Smart to develop something similar. Enter Magoon. Being a fan of Westerns, Magoon glommed on to the Western angle quite quickly. A man, a lone wolf, as the series was originally titled, would work for a top-secret organisation and go from place to place sorting out problems and then moving on. Magoon, a principled man, quickly made his voice heard in terms of production – he wanted Drake to be different than what was scripted, and the start got his way, the producers dramatically altering the main character and the situations he found himself in. McGowan's role, that of John Drake, would no longer be a rough-tough James Bond wannabe hit below the belt, always used a gun, and bedded and discarded women as necessary. Rather, he'd be a man of moral standards who detested violence, used his brains, and treated women with respect. He was not a thickier specialist, a puppet muscle man, Magoon was quoted as saying. There will be action, plenty of it, but no brutal violence. If a man dies, it's not just another cherry off the tree. When Drake fights, he fights clean. He abhors bloodshed. He carries a gun, but doesn't use it unless necessary. And even then, he doesn't shoot to kill. He prefers to use his wits. He's a person with a sophisticated background and the philosophy. I want Drake to be in the heroic mould, like the classic Western hero, which means he has to be a good man. It's hard to argue with Magoon's changes, which made the newly renamed Danger Man a smash success. In fact, it's arguable that Magoon's constant drive for quality... New ideas rather than recycled scripts and carefully choreographed action sequences meant that the writers couldn't rely on the standard shootout endings other shows of this type had relied on. The budget string showed on occasion with extensive backlot locations doubling as foreign lands and rear projection in lieu of location shooting. But location shooting was very rare in UK TV shows of this vintage, so the series relied on ingenuity and strong scripts to keep the audience entertained. Viewers were treated to the new series on the 10th of September 1960, when the pilot episode A View from the Villa was broadcast written by Ralph Smart and Avengers creator Brian Clemens, and directed by Terry Bishop. A View from the Villa is a smart, engaging piece of spy drama and pretty compelling telly, opening in Media Res.
2: Every government has its Secret Service branch. America at CIA, France, M Bureau, England, MI5. A messy job? Well, that's when they usually call on me or someone like me. Oh, yes. My name is Drake. John Drake.
1: This was the only background we were ever given on Drake. Not for 60s telly were long-laboured origin stories. Grade wanted the action to begin straight away. Unusually, the pilot was shot on location... And a very familiar location at that. I'll come to that later as well. For his first assignment, Drake is to investigate the murder of a banker, Frank Delroy, and locate a missing $5 million in gold bullion. Drake learns that Delroy is having an affair and sets about investigating the missing lady friend through her tailor-made designer clothes. Señorita Luco is the target, which Drake learns from the tailor, and is located in Italy. But the address he is given is for a plaza not yet built. Delroy's wife, for her part, seems nonplussed by his death, and yet amazed that he had the wherewithal to embezzle five million. This is an atypical story to use for the show's pilot. Drake isn't assigned this case per se, It's just dumb luck that he happened to be on holiday in Rome when Delroy was murdered. And, despite the opening saga cell, he's more of a detective in this story than anything else. He follows clues, leads and loose threads, all of which are plausible and credible, the story playing very fair with the audience. Drake's investigations lead him to a man who paints portraits, and then in turn to a painting, and then in turn back to Delroy's wife.
2: Hello, oh, Mr. Delroy. Mr. Drake, come in. Oh, uh, just passing, I thought I might take you up on that drink. Tony Maine, John Drake. Hello. I'll get you that drink. How do you do? Neat. Well, that could be too strong for Mr. Drake. <laughs> we never demoralized anyone. Thank you. Me too. Oh, what's this? Oh, it's just a little um, picture I bought myself. Do you like it? If you like that sort of thing. Why, what's the matter with it? Oh, it's pretty pretty. Mr. Drake is looking into Frank's death. Is that so? Having any luck?
1: Maine's reaction to the painting is interesting.
2: Oh, it certainly seems to interest Mr. Maine. Do, do you know the artist? No, but I know the picture. You do? Well, one very much like it. Uh, Frank used to keep one in his study here. Uh, you remember, Stella? Oh, yeah, it was something like that. I didn't like it. I wouldn't have it in the apartment. Well, I'm sorry you'll feel like that about it. I like it. Another drink, Mr. Drake. No, thank you. Well, it's a pity. I I still like it. Goodbye, Mr. Delroy. Goodbye, Mr. May. Well, call again. I always enjoy your visits. What, what was all that about? That picture was never in Frank's study. Drake never bought it either. He got it from Frank's other apartment. That's where I saw it. The last time he came here, he questioned me about dresses. It all adds up. He's looking for Frank's girlfriend.
1: As with lots of 60s drama, the sheer amount of drinking and smoking is amazing to modern eyes. It's amazing any work ever got done. People must have been half cut all day. The painting leads Drake to a small beach resort. And blow me down, if it isn't Port Marion. In North Wales! I told you it was a familiar location. Here, doubling as a small Italian beach resort, Port Merion would later be used by Magoon as the location of the village in the prisoner. Not a lot of the small village is seen in this episode, it being nearly two-thirds over before he even gets there, but it's unmistakable to anyone who's ever been there, and presumably Magoon stored the location in his back pocket for later use. It's here that Drake locates his target. The girlfriend wasn't Signorita Luco. It was Gina Scarlatti, the fashion designer all along. It was she who was feeding Drake the fake information. Fake looks, fake height, fake her, fake address. However, she knows nothing about the gold. She does, however, recognise the man who killed Delroy. She was in the room at the time of his death, which is why she's running scared. It was Maine. Of course, Drake turns the tables and recovers the gold, and even has his life saved by Gina. All told, this is a corking piece of spy telly. It's a taut, well-told detective story that moves along at a furrow clip due to its brief 26-minute runtime. time. McGowan is every bit as compelling here as in The Prisoner, and he owns the screen, boasting a cool, detached charisma that nevertheless commands attention. The monochromatic photography is crisp and clear, and the show proved a ratings hit. But not too much of a hit. Despite being popular at home, the show did not land big in the US, despite being given a network slot, and barely half the episodes were shown. However, reruns and further overseas sales were strong, and there were rumblings of networks wanting new episodes. This was due to the spy boom of the intervening years, with both Bond and the Avengers creating a market for British-led spy dramas. Danger Man had simply been two years ahead of its time. McGowan, in the interim, was even offered the role of Bond, but turned it down, leading to this great gag in the episode The Ubiquitous Mr Lovegrove. Drake returns home to find a colleague waiting for him reading From Russia With Love, complete with Sean Connery on the cover. What do you want? Why do I never meet a beautiful Russian spy in a sleeping car?
2: Possibly because the Treasury would send you a memo afterwards asking why it was necessary for you to travel first class.
1: With the series achieving this post urdate success, two years after the last episode of the first season had aired in January 1962, Danger Man was back in production. This time the show had a 32-episode order, a change of format, 49-minute episodes instead of 26, and a slight change in premise. Drake is no longer a troubleshooter for NATO, rather an agent working for the fictional British government agency M9. A new series necessitated a new theme. Edwin Astley's High Wire. In the US, the theme was Secret Agent Man, performed by Johnny Rivers.
0: There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stares a stranger. tomorrow Secret Agent Man Secret Agent Man They've given you a number and taken away your name Beware of pretty faces that you find A pretty face can hide say
1: I mentioned earlier we'd come back to that theme. They've given you a number and taken away your name is quite a funny line, in hindsight.
0: I am not a number, I am a free man!
1: Colony 3 is the episode I'm going to be looking at, and it's an intriguing one in light of where Magoon would go next. Written by Don Johnson, no, not that one, and directed by Don Chafee, this script is seen by many to be a precursor to the Prisoner but it's actually quite different, although highly influential in its own right. Numerous high-placed operatives have been defecting, and Drake manages to find one and prevent him from leaving the country. He takes him back to his superiors for an interrogation, and he's given his next assignment.
3: Well, what was this job they wanted you for? Advisor. They wanted me to advise them. What about? I don't know. I was to go straight to London Airport as soon as I got the passport and tickets and who are you to report to no nobody i was I supposed to board the plane like an ordinary passenger what about the other end somebody would meet me how would he identify himself i don't look look you can't keep me here i haven't done anything Oh, no, it's what you were going to do it interests us I, I tell you i don't know anymore i don't think he does he's pretty scared do you know how many british defectors have gone out there since the war 700 perhaps For this new batch that Fuller's in, it'll be 757. Oh, we're able to keep tabs on the big ones, the diplomats and the professionals. But over 400 have disappeared without trace. Why do they want them? And why do they disappear? Why do they disappear? Well, you're going to find out. We've got an agent out there in Section 1 who's switching the records on Robert Fuller. You're going out there to take his
1: place. With Drake set up to replace the man, he is packed up onto a sealed train with two other British defectors, Randall, played by Glyn Owen, and Janet Wells, played by Catherine Woodville. Owen is a popular British actor, cropping up his genre favourites, Doctor Who, the Tom Baker serial, The Power of Crawl, and the first few episodes of Blake Seven, amongst many others in his long and distinguished career. Woodville became Kate Woodville, and appears in the Star Trek episode For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Without knowing exactly where they are, the threesome step off the train into the middle of nowhere and are picked up by a London double-decker bus. They find themselves somewhere referred to as The Village, complete with accommodation, housing and shops. Finally, explanations are forthcoming.
3: Hamden is an induction centre for our intelligence agents. They come here to acclimatise themselves before being sent to work overseas. In plain English, it's a school for spies. And you think that there are no spy schools in Britain? Well, of course there are. But not so effective. In this village, we transform our agents into Englishmen. When our students arrive here, they already speak excellent English. But here they learn to live like Englishmen. And when they leave at the end of three years... They are, Englishmen, indistinguishable from yourselves. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. You have seen it? You?
1: As mentioned in that clip, this is a spy school in the middle of Russia. Russian agents learn from the defectors how to act like real citizens in the country they are to be sent to, the implication being that all countries have such schools. The rules are laid down.
2: I I, I still can't believe that this is not England, that you are... Uh, not English. Oh, but I am. I'd like to know how you did it. The new techniques that Mr. Donovan mentioned. Uh, you'll be working in the village. You see, all the special training takes place in the school. I, I wonder if I might uh, see round it sometime. Why are you so interested? Well, I'd like to know how things work, where I fit in. Well, it can't do any harm. I'll take you there now. Oh, good. All the technical classes are on the ground floor, photography. They teach us how to photograph documents, microphotography, long range work. For all of the students? We have to qualify in all subjects. Capitalist economy. Now he's giving them a grounding in the London stock market. How does that help? When our men arrive in England, they must be able to hold their own in any conversation. Oh, the stock market may be dull, but so reassuring. Now, how can a man who can talk about stock market trends? be anything but a true blue capitalist. I see your point.
1: Drake plays his mission close to the vest, portraying the buttoned-down accountant rule very, very well, a marked contrast to the rebellious and nonconformist number six in The Prisoner. In fact, in this story, it's Randall who is the agitator, not enjoying the village and its confinement at all. It's a gilded cage, but still a cage. Drake, by contrast, places rule to the hilt, staying under the radar. However, he is interrogated, and his battle of wills with Richardson are very similar to that of number six and number two. Randall takes an instant dislike to Drake, believing him to capitulate far too easily to the whims of whoever. For Drake, there is no escaping Randall, for they are required to share a flat. At least in The Prisoner, he got his own place. There is a humorous moment when Richardson, the man in charge of looking after all the defectors, explains how they are adopting the customs of the country they are to be sent to.
2: English papers, English everything, including the weather. We must absorb your curious customs. Drive on the left, politics on the right. Animals in the home, children safely in boarding school. Hate privilege, suck up to the privileged. Love money, despise the rich. When we leave Hamden, we are even more English than the English. excuse me, sir. It's nice to see a strange face. You are new around here? Wrong first time, eh, Fuller? Well, the phrase, nice to see a strange face, was too familiar. An Englishman never talks to a stranger.
1: Drake then sets about doing his spy work. He uses a typewriter with an inbuilt camera to take photos of all the occupants of the village, so M9 can know who the Russian spies are and who has defected. Randall becomes more and more angry as we go along, and he's more like Six. He's fiery, free-spirited, independent, and resentful of authority. The main difference here, his Six was kidnapped and sent to the village against his will, whereas Randall seems to have volunteered for this and then changed his mind, only to find out there's no going back. As with Six, in many episodes of The Prisoner, Randall makes a break for it. But it's Drake who stops him. It's in Drake's interest to maintain his cover, but helping Randall seems to be because he wants to do it, although bringing him back leads to him being tortured and arguably worse off. Did Drake do this for his cover, or were there other reasons? There's a lot of ambiguity to Danger Man, with Drake frequently butting heads with his superiors. His helping of Randall leads him to almost being discovered. But prior to this, he's managed to get a message through to the British government to get him out. Colony 3 is forced to let him go, but they arrange an accident on the way. Before he can leave, though, Janet gives him a letter in secret. Something that is spotted by Richardson.
2: So you're human, voila. Oh, that's reassuring, I suppose. What do you mean? The girl. It was very touching. You saw her give me the letter? I was waiting for you to mention it. Dear Mother, you must help me. I... I would have thought that she would have realized by now. Realized what? That once people enter Colony 3, they...
1: After this altercation, Richardson makes his move. But Drake, as he has been throughout, is one step ahead of them and turns the tables. This is a consistent characterisation of Drake in all the episodes I've seen. He leaves nothing to chance, plans his missions as meticulously as possible and works very hard to eliminate any variables. He's a far more intellectual and thoughtful spy than Bond or Napoleon Solo and this leads to better plots and more introspective drama. Having escaped with the information required, Drake returns to London and reports to his superiors.
3: You say there were 86 of these students? Uh, Including Richardson. Mm -hmm. If there's only 59 photographs. Well, we'll nab these fellows when they turn up for duty. Nothing we can do about the girl, I suppose. Of course not.
2: We've never even heard of her. As Richardson said, She no longer exists.
1: The mission was a success, but the ending is ambiguously cruel, with Janet being left there, abandoned and forgotten by the British government. Another thing Danger Man excelled at was the greyer areas of espionage. John Drake is no George Smiley, but he's no Derek Flint either. He lives in a grey world where doing right often means doing wrong, and he looks like he's not really happy about it. Colony 3 is a cracking little spy, yarn. It does touch on some of the themes of the prisoner with regards to loss of identity, identity theft, and the role of the individual in the life of someone who has sworn their life to secrecy and deception. But its main idea, foreign spy schools teaching spies how to blend in, wasn't really the prisoner's bag. Oddly enough, this central idea was used in episodes of Alias, Season 4's Welcome to Liberty Village, Chuck, the Season 2 episode, Chuck vs. the Suburbs, and even seems to have partially inspired the 6th Season X-Files story, Arcadia. Danger Man carried on for two more seasons, Season 3 being 13 episodes, again all monochrome, and Season 4, which lasted a whole two episodes, but this time in colour. Some accounts say that these episodes were never meant to launch a new season of the show, Magoon having already decided to move on, but were created simply to make enough colour material to create a movie that could be released around the world. They would be aired in the UK as two separate episodes, where it made no difference that they were in colour, as very few people had a colour TV in the UK in 1967. The episodes aired as a prelude to The Prisoner, which was having trouble meeting its date due to Magoon's meticulous nature. So... Was John Drake the prisoner? I don't know. But he sure looked like him.
2: Comic books in Star Wars have long been cornerstones of geek culture. I'm Grant Richter, and in my new project, The Jedi Archive, a Star Wars comics podcast, I'll be talking about where those two points intersect. I'll be talking about all eras of the Star Wars universe in the comic book medium. The Republic... The Rebellion, The Resistance, The Old Republic, I'll be talking about Dark Horse Legends and Marvel Canon, and if I'm feeling really wacky, the old-school Marvel Star Wars series. So be sure to check out The Jedi Archive, a Star Wars comics podcast, on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor.fm slash The Jedi
1: Archive. Okay, email section. Okay, our first email, Empire at Forte, is by Tom Paneris, and it loved the Empire retrospective. You're right that this is one movie that has been covered to death on a slew of other podcasts, which is probably why, aside from the odd blog entry, I've barely touched Star Wars. But I think you did a great job in capturing what it felt like to be the epicentre of what was clearly a cultural phenomenon. At least as far as I can tell, anyway. Empire came out about a month shy of my third birthday, so I did not see it in the theatre. In fact, the experience you are describing is one similar to my experience with Return of the Jedi, and I didn't see Empire until late 1983, early 1984, when my Uncle Lou let me watch his bootleg of the film. The quality wasn't the best, but I remember loving it nonetheless. Yeah, all those bootlegs, that brings back lots of memories, those shitty camera bootlegs. That's how I first saw E.T., as a shitty camera-copied VHS bootleg. Absolutely terrible quality. And I think it's why, to this day, I don't like E.T. <laughs> Should have paid for it at the cinema. Shouldn't that's my fault. Empire came out on video right around the time my local video store opened, continues Tom. Saville's Video Empire, which is where I would practically live for most of my youth. And I still have a picture of myself with Darth Vader at the grand opening. I met Darth Vader interjecting again, uh, when he opened the John Menzies news in town. It's now WH Smith. But uh, Darth Vader opened that shop, and I had my picture with him. It was in the paper. And I have tried in archives and, and stuff to find my picture with him, but no success. By the way, I still have my original VHS copy, continues Tom, which is dubbed from a laser disc. And I remember you could tell the disc was flopped right before the encounter in the cave on Dagobah. Thank you very much for this great trip down memory lane. All the best, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Received a lot of nice feedback about the Empire episode. Um, What was interesting about that Empire episode, a little peek behind the curtain, was it was banged out in less than 24 hours when I realized that that weekend was, in fact, Empire's 40th birthday. Um, And it was one of those, I originally thought I wouldn't bother doing anything. But then the inspiration came to me to not talk about Empire but to talk about me because that felt like it was a unique tack to take in regards to talking about Empire because everyone's talked about the film but only I can talk about me. And that seemed to be the way to go. So that's the way it went. And that's why if you pay attention, the emails are in the wrong order. I mean, you'd never know that because you don't know what order I received the emails. But it basically pumped the two Spider-Man episodes back. Um, And obviously one of those didn't get released on time because of the events of, of around that weekend. It didn't feel right to release an episode straight away. So they got delayed a little bit. But we're back on track now with Danger Man. Our next email is a new listener, Brian Kerr from Lockland, NY, which I presume is New York. Hello. It's nice to, nice to have you drop by, Brian. Andrew, I'm a first-time writer who loves the show. You co-host, Listen to the Prophets. I've listened now to many of your more recent episodes, and especially like the Spider-Man run you're covering. I am a fan also of the original Star Trek, but I seem to only see about 15 to 20 episodes, which always seem to be playing in syndication in New York, where I live. When you cover an episode on your podcast, I like to watch it on Netflix. of the Name has a scene where Scotty is trying to get one of the aliens drunk and is going through his stash. He brings forth his last bottle. The alien asks, what is it? Scotty studies the bottle for a bit and says, It's green. The Next Generation episode, Relics, where Scotty returns, having jerry-rigged a transporter to keep his pattern stable, is one of my favourites. In that episode, Scotty visits Ten Forward looking for a drink. Unhappy with the synth hall, Data offers him an actual alcoholic libation. Scotty asks, what is it? To which Data studies the bottle, uncorks it, sniffs it, and, still uncertain, proclaims, it is green. This is one of the more fun bits of homage the next generation gives to the original Star Trek. Certainly immeasurably better than The Naked now. Thank you for your efforts in providing pleasure to your listeners and stay safe, Brian Kurt. Well, you too, Brian. And thank you very much for emailing in. Don't be a stranger. Drop me some more missives. Hit me up on the first place or whatever. I've logged out of Twitter for a bit because it just depresses me. God, that's a piss show of a social media platform, isn't it? But anyway enough of that drivel. Let's have a look at our next and final email for tonight, which is from Ryan Daly. Palace episode 153. Hey Andy. Hey Ryan. Ryan does the Overlooked Dark Knight. No he doesn't. I do that show. (laughs) Ryan does Batman Nightcast it's easy to get the two mixed up with Chris Franklin and I had the distinct pleasure of being on an episode of that recently so if you want to go and check a crossover episode between me, Michael Bailey, Ryan and Chris go and check out Batman Nightcast and then come back for the Overlook Dark Knight where Ryan and Chris repaid the favour by dropping by our show hey Andy, hey Ryan I just finished listening to episode 153, covering the last batch of Stan Lee-written issues of Amazing Spider-Man. As usual, this was a thoroughly enjoyable episode. I've always admired the way you drill down to the essential information of the story, while providing succinct and substantive commentary on the pros, the cons, and the lasting implications of each issue. And all in about five minutes per issue. Well done. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm always a bit you know about am I covering the right stuff and ultimately you can only focus on the stuff you're interested in and hope other people are interested in that as well so thank you very much even though you've reached the end of this particular era well there's, there was one more obviously that has now come out so now I am at the end it's wibbly wobbly i hope you are not bidding adieu to the wall crawler whilst i would certainly understand if you want to retire your coverage of spider-man for the foreseeable future on a selfish personal level i would much rather you employ the find your joy method of bopping around to another era as you'd like to review be it roger stern mickalini mcfarlane or whatever oh have no fear mr daly spider-man will never be far away i have every intention Of going into the Roger Stern run next. I've already mapped out how many episodes that will take. And then it's like you read my mind. I had planned on going into the McFarlane after that. Or maybe doing like you say a bit of a mix and match. Um, Because I honestly think Michaelina McFarlane was the last time. The book was really great. You know, Straczynski's run with John Romita Jr. is good. But soured slightly towards the end. And then the post-marriage stuff... Well, you know, it's, it's very, it's the definition of mixed bag, isn't it? Regardless of what you decide, continues Ryan, it's been a great journey following along with you on this first decade of Peter Parker's adventures. Great job on all these episodes. Take a bow and a drink, whatever, you've earned it, Ryan. Well, thank you, Ryan. That means a lot. I'm, uh, I'm deeply touched. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad everyone who listens to them enjoy those. They are very much a labour of love. And if I never do anything else in podcasting ever again, I've done that. Covered all the Stan Lee's Spider-Man. So that was nice. Okay, next time. No idea. Not got a clue. I'm in the middle of doing Chuck, doing an episode on Chuck, another spy series. Whether that rises to the top and becomes the next episode, I don't know. Script still needs battering into shape. But uh, if you want to email in, like Ryan, Brian and Tom, please do. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com and join in the conversation. And I will see you next time with whatever it is that tickles my ivories. Take care, stay safe, and hopefully it is going to be okay. Although 2020 is severely taxing me on this mantra. No, no, remain optimistic. See you soon. Bye-bye.